Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We are continuing with our sermon series through the great book of Philippians that we're calling Finding Joy Even When You Don't Feel Like It. Because when you don't feel it, that's when you need to find it. And the theme for the message today is this, finding joy even when you're frustrated. Just to let you know, Before I start this sermon, I'm preaching to myself because I am frustrated. There is a joke that pastors tell that oftentimes before you preach a sermon, God makes you live it so that way you're not a hypocrite. This week, your pastor, total hypocrite. Last week, I said that it was possible for you to do all things without grumbling and complaining. Well, guess what I did this week? Grumble, 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 complain, complain, complain. Yeah, Paul, how about you talk to the bank for eight hours while listening to adult contemporary music? If I hear hear one more Shania Twain song, I am going to lose my mind. That's my week this week. It was frustrating. How many of you? That's you. You're just frustrated. How many of you, you live there? You live in frustration nation. You're like, go ahead and just ship my mail, P.O. box, frustration nation. You ever have one of those weeks where it doesn't seem like anything goes right? Like how hard you try, it just fails. And you're just like, you know what? In the end, it's all gonna burn anyway, so what's the point? That's where I was at this week. And I know that that's where many people are at. Because right now, a lot of us, we are feeling frustration. Whenever COVID-19 first happened, most people's first response was that of fear. Oh no, what are we going to do and what's going to happen? Well, as the weeks turned into months, people aren't really experiencing a lot of fear. What most people that I've talked to is they're just landed at frustration. They're just like, it doesn't matter what happens because there's nothing that I can do to control it or fix it. And people have found themselves in a place of frustration that many people are losing their jobs Some 20 million people have applied for unemployment. That is frustrating. I know many people have been tested or sick or at risk, and that's got to be very frustrating. I know that schools have closed. Some of your graduations have been canceled. That is very frustrating. I know that Amazon is now taking two months, what used to took two days to deliver. That's got to be, especially for book lovers during quarantine, very frustrating. Even H-E-B curbside takes a long time. I mean, H-E-B of all places, they're the best, but it's also a little frustrating that so much of everything that we have looked towards and relied on has been canceled, interrupted, and so you and me and many people find themselves in a place where we're just frustrated. And if that's you, the Apostle Paul is going to have some joy for us, that it is possible, according to the book of Philippians, to find joy even when you are frustrated. So if you have your Bible, go ahead turn to Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 1 and I'm going to open by telling you a story. Even though that this week was a frustrating week for me, there was one bright spot in the week and his name is Matt Stevenson. We actually added a new 
member, a staff member up at the church. His name's Matt. Many of you guys know Matt because he's been with us serving as a deacon for a long time. And recently he became unemployed due to the coronavirus. And so he was at home filing for unemployment. And I reached out to him. I said, hey, you know, if you want something to do in the meantime, well, we have some things to do. Why don't you come work for us? And he agreed. And I said, hey, by the way, I can't pay you, but I can buy you tacos. And he said, that's the same thing. He was going to spend all of his money on tacos anyway. So we cut out the middleman and we just went straight to supplying his habit. So Matt, along with his taco habit, came and worked up at the church. And while he is serving up at the church, Matt is amazing. Matt is what I like to call upwardly mobile. Means he had a, he has a good job. He's got good work ethics. He has a somehow got uh, a wonderful woman to say yes when he proposed to him. And, and she's gonna, they're going to get married in a few months. And man, he has a bright future in front of him. And he is incredible. He has a great attitude. He's always laughing, always joking. He has the best memes. And he was a real bright spot for us this week. I loved working with Matt. And so on Thursday, I, I pulled him aside and said, hey, how are you feeling? And he said, you know what? I'm actually doing pretty good. I was like, hey, man, like you had a good job. You're supposed to be getting married in a few months. You know, you got your whole life in front of you. And then it seems like the bottom falls out. And he says, yeah, you know, I could be very frustrated about all of this, but I see this as an opportunity for me to work on myself. I was like, you're not upset about the job? He's like, no, you know, God gave me that job. I believe that God's going to give me a new job. This is an opportunity for me to get some things in my home in order, to get some things in my life in order. I'm praying more than ever before. I'm reading my Bible. I love serving at the church. I love working with you guys. And I think when this is all over, I'm going to grow through it. And I said, Matt, that's amazing. Do you want to preach this week? Because you have what I don't have. You have joy. And I don't have any of that. So I asked Matt if he would like to preach the sermon this week. And well, he said no, so you guys are left with me. But I tell you all of that to tell you this, that so much of life is not what you go through, but it's really how you go through it. That if you focus on the problems, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find problems. Instead, what we need to do is fix our perspective. That so much of our life is not about focusing on the problems, but rather fixing our perspective. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to show us that it's not what you go through, but it's your perspective as you go through it. Listen, we're all going to go through it. Most of us pray. We say, God, would you bring me around it? But God doesn't always bring us around it. Or what we pray like, God, would you make it stop? God, would you prevent it? But God doesn't always prevent it, but he always has an opportunity to give you his perspective while you're in the middle of it. Matt is in the middle of it. You and me, we are in the middle of it. Paul is a man who is in the middle of it. Where is Paul at as he's writing this book of Philippians? He is in prison. Did he do anything to warrant being in prison? No. That's got to be very frustrating. He's 800 miles away from his friends and his family. That's got to be very frustrating. He's chained to a Roman guard. He doesn't know where his next meal has come from. He could live or die at any moment. That's got to be very frustrating. But instead of focusing on the problems, Paul, he fixes his perspective and he 
focuses on Jesus, and because he does that, he has joy. And so he's going to give us the guide. He's going to give us the vantage point. He's going to give us the perspective of God in the middle of frustration, so that way you can find joy. And so here's the first thing that he's going to tell us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He's going to start by telling us that you can have joy when you're frustrated if you remember that Jesus is a joy giver. Here's what he starts by saying. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write these same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Now, is Paul finished with the book of Philippians? No, but he starts by saying, finally, where are we at? We're in 3-1, okay? That means he is in the middle. But even in the middle, he's reminding them to rejoice in the Lord. He's been telling them for the entire book, find joy, look for joy, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, finally, I want you to find your joy. In the middle of it, it is possible for you to find joy. 19 times in the book of Philippians, 104 verses, he says, joy, rejoicing, cheer, gladness, thanksgiving, keep throwing parties in your heart, make sure that you find some joy. Why does Paul keep repeating himself? Is it because he's old? No, it's because we forget. The Bible often repeats itself because we are so quick to forget. One of the reasons that you get frustrated is because you forget. You forget where your joy comes from. So you gotta, you gotta keep being reminded. I don't know about you, but I am very forgetful. You can ask anyone in the church or the team. Pastor Byron is very forgetful. I often joke that if I could lose my salvation, I probably would. I would lose my salvation next to the remote, next to the Tamagotchi from fifth grade. Where did it go? I don't know. It's in a drawer somewhere next to my salvation. If I could lose it, I would lose it because I am so forgetful. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, the reason that you're frustrated is because you forget. So you need to be reminded. If you wouldn't leave your house in the morning without your phone, don't leave the house in the morning without your joy. If you wouldn't forget to brush your teeth in the morning, don't forget to get up and find joy in the morning. You got to keep reminding yourself, find joy, find joy. So he says, finally, my brothers rejoice. And then he tells them where joy is found. He doesn't tell them, go to Sam's Club and look for some joy because Sam's Club doesn't have toilet paper and they also don't have joy. He doesn't tell them to go buy joy off of Amazon because it takes too long to ship it and it's not going to get there in time. And UPS doesn't have a truck big enough to be able to house the joy that God has for you. If you and me are looking for joy in places or people or things, we are going to be frustrated. But he tells us there is a joy that comes from the Lord that will never disappoint, never let us down, never fail us, and never frustrate us. He tells them, go find your joy in the Lord. That we're not rejoicing because of the circumstances, we're rejoicing in spite of the circumstances. That we're not rejoicing because of the situation, we're rejoicing in spite of the situation. We're rejoicing because God has a joy that is bigger, that is greater than anything in this world world. And so we're going to keep going to him because Jesus is a joy giver. And here's what I want you to know. When you're running out of joy, run to Jesus. 
When you're running out of joy, just keep running to Jesus. When you're feeling empty, you run to Jesus. When you're feeling low, you run to Jesus. When you're feeling depleted or defeated or depressed, you run to Jesus. When you're feeling rejected or dejected, you keep running to Jesus. No matter if it's good, no matter if it's bad, you keep running to Jesus. If you're running out of joy, then you need to run to Jesus. I love that he says, rejoice in the Lord. Do you know what that means? That God always has joy for you. That God is an infinite source of joy. That God is a happy God. God is a good God. God is a glad God. God is a joyful God. And because he is continually joyful, he continues to give joy. That means that he's never closed. Unlike so many of the other businesses and around, he's always open. It's 24-7 joy available to you. That he doesn't close. His joy is never canceled. It's always in season. You can keep going to him. His business of joy is considered essential. That you can go to him anytime, anywhere, anyone, and he will give you joy. You can get joy in the morning. You can get joy in the afternoon. You can get joy in the evening. You can get joy before you go to bed. And even when you wake up in the middle of the night, if you run to Jesus, Jesus gives joy. So Paul tells him, finally, is he done? No, they're in the middle, but he reminds them, Jesus is a joy giver. When Jesus was walking the earth, guess what? Everyone that he came in contact, joyful. That Jesus is always helping, loving, serving, giving, blessing, feeding, and having parties with people because Jesus is a joy giver. But there was one group of people, well, they weren't very joyful. They were known as the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders. And they were always angry, always disgruntled, and they were always frustrated because they didn't really get along with Jesus. And who had Jesus arrested? It was the religious leaders. Who had Jesus tried, crucified, murdered, and who killed Jesus? It was the religious people. So what he's going to tell us next is this. Point number one, Jesus is a joy giver. But number two, religion is a joy killer. Here's what he says in verse two. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, here he's not talking about your pet fluffy, right? He's not talking about the dog that wags his tail and loves you unconditionally and waits by the food bowl for you to take care of him. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about the wild dogs, the religious leaders that bite, that attack, that devour, that bark, and that want nothing more than to destroy your joy and to kill the joy that Jesus gives to you. He calls them the dogs. Some of you might be wondering, does the Bible say anything about cats? No, because cats are dumb and God don't like them. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But he says, look out for the dogs. All the cat people are really mad at me right now. All the dog people just click share. Okay, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Jesus wants to give you joy, but there are defeater beliefs. There are killjoys. There are things that people believe, worldviews that are in the world to be able to take joy away from you. And here he's going to talk about the religious leaders. Now, when I say religion... 
I don't mean what James says, that pure and perfect religion is taking care of the orphans and the widows. I'm talking about religion that's a bad religion, that it's man's attempts and efforts to be able to, through works and achievements, receive favor and salvation from the Lord. That religion would be all about what you do. It's I've earned this, I deserve this, I'm a good, decent, moral person, and so because I'm better than everybody else, well, God must really love me. That is religion. It's all about works. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about his testimony. He's going to go on and he's going to warn them about what happens when you give in to a religious mindset. He's going to help them see that Jesus is a joy giver, but religion is a joy killer. Here's what he says in verse three. For we are the circumcision. How many of you didn't see that one coming? (laughs) Right? You're like, that's not how I would describe describe myself, the circumcision. I already got in trouble for the joke in last week, so I'm not going to make a circumcision joke this week. But I am glad that we went with Christian rather than circumcision to describe us. Moving on. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's his works. That's his good deeds. That's his religion. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. What Paul's about to do is he is about to give us his resume. He's about to list his portfolio. He's going to show us all of the good deeds and all of the accomplishments that he achieved in his life before he met Jesus. And I think this is very important. Because oftentimes in the church, we love to tell stories and testimonies about people meeting Jesus and how God met them at the lowest point of their life. That's where God met me at, at the lowest point. I was a 19-year-old, strung out, punk rock, in jail, alcoholic, had nothing to live for, and then Jesus met me. That's where God met my wife. She was alone in her bedroom. She was 19 years old, and she realized that she was empty, and she prayed, and then The Holy Spirit moved right into the room. She gave her life to Jesus. That's my wife's story. That's many of your stories. I love hearing stories about God delivering people from addiction. I love hearing stories about God rescuing them from depression. I love hearing stories about how God came in and changed people's lives entirely and completely, and they are not the same person they were than the day that they met Jesus. I love hearing those stories, but that's not everybody's story. That God doesn't only meet people at the bottom, God also meets people at the top. That God doesn't only meet people at their worst, but some people, they think they're the best and they climb the ladder all the way up to the top, what they define success is, and they realize that it was empty and they are frustrated. That's Paul's story. That God didn't save Paul from his past, God really saved Paul from his pride. And when as a church, all we do is tell testimonies and stories about the people who met God at the bottom, we make those at the top feel very proud. It's where they think, I don't need God because I'm better than all of those other people. That they need God because they're weak. They need God because they're broken. They need God because they're poor, but not me because I'm on top. I got everything together. I have no need for God. And they don't realize that their sin is actually not their past, but their pride, which is the greatest sin of all, living autonomously and separated from God. You need God. Gotcha. So Paul was saved from his pride. And what Paul's about to do is this. Paul's about to list his resume. He's going to say, you think you were great? 
you're not as good as me. You think you are special? No, not as good as me. I climbed the ladder of success all the way to the very top, and I'm trying to warn you. When you get there, it's empty. Listen to my story. Here's what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day. Got to be specific. <laughs> not the sixth day, not the ninth day, on the eighth day. People of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's saying is you can trace my genealogy all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, the founders of the nation of Israel. This is my pedigree. This is my lineage. This is my history. My great-great-granddaddy was Abraham. He goes on and he writes, as to the law of Pharisees, that this is the leading class of the religious leaders. He studied under the greatest rabbi that there was, that he was magna cum laude at Torah University. This is better than Yale and Harvard combined. I mean, he had the perfect 4.0 GPA. He was top of the class. He was the who's who of Pharisees. He goes on and he lists that as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he was the most devoted person to the cause that there was. When we first meet Paul in Acts chapter 7, his name's not Paul, it's actually Saul, and he's overseeing the murder of a deacon named Stephen. He was so zealous, so holy, so devoted, so pious, so religious that if anyone disagreed with them, he would actually persecute and kill them. That's how serious he was. He goes on and he writes, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. If that was on Pinterest, it would read like this. Nailed it. That's Paul's story. He was blameless. But, verse 7, but, probably one of the most powerful words in all of the Bible. But, whatever gain I had. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Think about this like the profit and loss column. So for those of you who are high achievers, type A personalities, three on the Enneagram, and you have your nice little spreadsheet and you're trying to figure out how to be better than everybody else, think profit and loss columns. He just lists his portfolio, his resume. Everything would go right here in the profit column. These are his success. These are his accolades. These are his achievements. These are his accomplishments. And what he's saying is this, I am better than you. I have succeeded. I have achieved more than you will ever do in your life. I climbed the ladder of success all the way to the very top. Whatever you're looking for, I had it and I probably did it better than you. And then I met Jesus. And then I took everything from the profit column and then I moved it over to the lost column because I found something better. His name is Jesus. For the sake of Jesus, I count it all loss because now he has a relationship with Jesus. Whatever you're hoping for in this life, it is gonna fail you and frustrate you. It's a ladder that you climb to the very top and guess what there is on the other side? Another ladder and you gotta keep climbing and then after that, there's another ladder and after that, there's another ladder and you're going to climb all the way to the top and it's going to be frustrating and it will fail you because there is only one way, only one thing, and only one person who could ever truly give you joy and its name, his name is Jesus. That there is nothing you will do in this life that is more significant than giving your life to Jesus. There is nothing you will accomplish in this life that weighs more than the hope and the glory and the joy that Jesus has for you. The most important decision you will ever make 
in this life is to give your life to Jesus and to be in a relationship with Jesus. And here's what Paul is getting at. He's getting at the difference between religion and relationship. That religion is all about what you do. Relationship is all about who you know. This is why in this section, he's going to keep hammering over and over and over again, knowing Christ, knowing Christ, knowing Christ, knowing Christ, because according to Paul, it's not about what you do, but rather it's about who you know. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus. See, religion is all about what you do. That every religion, philosophy, and ideology in the world would say that if you do this, then you will be successful, then you will be honorable, and then you can earn favor from God. And so they would tell you, you have to do this big, long list of things. So you need to make a journey to this holy place. You need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. You got to give this much money. You got to be a part of this cause. You have to reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt, that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then maybe at the end of your life, if you've done enough good, then God, he will reward you. It's all a big, long list of what you need to do in order to earn your salvation. Christianity is not religious in that way. Christianity is all about relationship. Do you know what you need to do to get to heaven? Nothing, because it's all about who you know. That if you know Christ, then you're in. If you know Christ, then you're saved. If you have faith in Jesus, that is all that you need. And Paul here, it may seem like a tangent. You're like, why is he going off? Because, you know, for the last two chapters, he's been saying, find joy, find joy. I counted all joy, my brothers. He's saying, Hey, I love you. I miss you. I'm here for you. Let's do this. And then all of a sudden he says, watch out for the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh. And then he goes into this big tangent about religion versus relationship. And you think that's very interesting. Why would Paul do this? Because it really is still all about perspective. That Paul is the pastor of this church, and he wants them to find joy, but he also knows that now that he's gone, there's going to be other people, other teachers, and other worldviews that are going to come in and try to steal the joy that God has for you. He says, don't go there, don't listen to them, don't buy into it, because all that is is going to steal your joy. It's really still about perspective. That if you go through this life thinking everything depends on you, do you know how frustrating that's going to be? Because when you're on top, you think, I've earned it. But then when you fail, you think, I don't deserve this. And then you begin blaming other people. And you begin looking at other people. And anytime you're not perfect, you feel like a total failure. And that leads to complete frustration for you. You always have to pretend that you're better than other people. You can't be honest. You can't be vulnerable. You have to have it all together. When you know you better than anyone else and you frustrate you every time because you know you better. You know how frustrating it is to live believing that everything depends on you and that anytime you mess up, God is angry, God is judgmental, and God is against you. It's frustrating. Paul says, there's a better way. There's a better way to live that produces great joy. Jesus gives joy. Religion kills joy. And so he goes on, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to give us his testimony. 
He's going to tell us about what it means to experience life change and joy that comes from Jesus. Here's what he says. For I have suffered the loss of all things. For Paul, he really has lost a lot. Whenever Paul became a Christian, he moved everything from the prophet column to the lost column, and he lost everything. That for Paul, he has lost his friends and family. He has lost money. He's lost opportunity. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his um, accolades. He's no longer able to teach in the same places that he used to teach. Some commentators say that he maybe even lost his wife and kids because in order to be a part of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees, one of the requirements is that you were to be married. And by the time we meet Paul after his salvation, we see no wife, we see no kids, which has led many people to believe that his wife divorced him based upon his salvation. He's lost so much in life. Now he's in prison, he's lost his freedom, and he's away a possible execution, which means he's going to maybe even lose his life. And we know that at the end of his life, he was actually martyred for the sake of Christ. Paul is a man who knows loss. He goes on and he writes, but I count it all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's religion, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that is relationship. It's not about what you do, it's about who you know. That I may, what's the word? Know him and the power of his resurrection and that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and that by any means possible, I might obtain the resurrection of the dead. Now, there is a really big difference between religion and relationship, and it all centers on this one word right here, righteousness, okay? So let me go ahead and unpack it. God is righteous. That means he is perfect, he is just, he is light, he is true, he is always good, he is pure, without fault, without fail, without sin. God is perfect. God is righteous. And when God made the world, he made you and me in his image and likeness, which means we were created to be righteous. But sin enters into the world. Our first parents back in the garden, they gave in to sin and temptation. They fell and you and me and everyone who has ever lived ever since, we have lost our righteousness. But because we were made to be righteousness, everyone is in a pursuit to try to go back to the garden to make themselves righteous again. No one would look at the world and say, this world is the way that it ought to be. No, we would all recognize that there is something broken. That you and me, we would look into ourselves and say, hey, there is something wrong. There is something desperate. There is something because we're not perfect. Even non-Christians would agree with us on this point. And we would all say, nobody is, what's the word? Perfect. So great. You agree with Romans chapter three that says there is no one righteous, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. God's standard is perfection. But there is this inner longing for righteousness that all of us have. This is the reason that life coaches and personal trainers and self-help books make 
billions of dollars every single year because they're tapping into the inner longing and frustration, the desire for righteousness that all of us have, that we would look at ourselves and say, this is who I am. I don't like who I am. I'm not who I want to be. So if I do these things, then I will finally be happy. Then my life will have purpose. And then I will be able to declare myself righteous. If I just follow this list, if I jump through the hoops, if I pull myself up by my bootstraps, if I'm just a good person and keep reading and doing all of these different things, then maybe I will be able to declare myself as righteous. All that is is an attempt for religion. That's exactly what it is. It's just religion. It's religion by a different name, but it's all about what you do. See, in Paul's day, their religion was circumcision. All they believed is, you want to be a righteous, good person? Just a little snip, snip, and you're good. And we think, that's crazy. I know it's crazy, but the crazy thing is 2,000 years later, we're doing the exact same thing today. We're just religious and self-righteous in a different direction. See, there are some people, they are religiously devoted to lots of different things. People are religiously devoted to their hobbies and their interests because they believe that that will make them righteous. There are people who are religiously devoted to certain ways to raise your kids, homeschool or parochial school or Christian school because they think this is the way and if I do it this way, then I will be declared righteous. People are religiously devoted to their race, to their income, to their ethnicity, to their gender, to their tax bracket, to their presidential candidates. This is why every four years there is a war in America between two parties that shoot themselves and try to declare which one of them is righteous. They think that if we can do this, then it will be perfect and then we will be righteous. What's the problem with that though? The definition of right, righteous is perfection. And the problem with perfection is if you were imperfect in the past, you will never be perfect in your future because it's already too late. This is why Jesus would say, unless your perfection exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will never make it into heaven. Paul was a Pharisee, and he says, here is my list of righteousness, and even my list doesn't make it. This is why God says to be holy as I am holy. The question is, are you holy? Are you perfect? Are you righteous? The answer is no. So therefore you fail. And it doesn't matter what you have done in the past because your future is imperfect because it's just the way that it goes. See, you need to understand that God, God is a God that grades not on a curve, but God grades as a pass or fail. Okay, so God, when he, when he judges, he doesn't have multiple choice. It's true, false, righteous, unrighteous. It's heaven, it's hell. He does not grade on a curve. And so D's may get you degrees in college, but they will not get you into heaven. It's based upon righteousness. And if you want to go based on your righteousness, guess what? It doesn't work because you're never going to be righteous. Paul, what he's getting at is religion, relationship, and what we'll call a works righteousness versus a gift righteousness. Works righteousness based on what you do, what you earn, it just doesn't work. He says it's actually another word. He refers to it as 
rubbish in verse 8. And you say, Pastor Byron, that's a very interesting word. Is the Apostle Paul British? No. Then why does he say rubbish? Great question. And um, you would be at this point in the sermon where you ask me to use my Greek skills. And so, okay, I'll go ahead and do it since you ask. The word rubbish is actually a Greek word that is skubala. You say, that's interesting. What does it mean? I'll tell you. Some of your translations list it as rubbish or waste or excrement or dung or garbage or refuse or some translations listed as turds. And then there's one translation from the 19th century in Ireland that actually uses the S word. Gotta love the Irish. He says that works-based righteousness, religion, your good deeds before a holy and just God is nothing more than a big steaming pile of scubala. You're like, wow, that's amazing. I know it is. Next time you're out walking your dog, I want you to think, oh, that's what religion looks like. And then pick up the scubula. <laughs> right? Next time, you know, you're given a chore charts for your kids, tell them, go outside and pick up the religion because that's exactly what it is. For all of you dads with newborns at the house, your wife, she is so tired. So next time the baby has a blowout, you say, babe, as the head of the house, it is my job to clean up the religion in the home. Let me change that scubula diaper. Right? That's what you say. Just walk around the home with the scubula scooper. That is your job to pick up all of the religion. And what What's so funny about this is that religious people love to compare their piles to other people. They're like, look how big my pile of scubula is. And I don't think that's an accomplishment. They're like, I take three scubulas a day. I don't think that's a good thing. I just take one big scubula after my morning cup of coffee. That's not good. That's not good. Oh, I have green scubula. You are a hippie and you might need to go see a doctor and get that checked out. But that is not... I don't know, man. I wouldn't be bragging about how big my pile is. That's what I'm saying. But you know what? We're being silly. But Paul is really getting after something that's very serious. Some of the religious people are like, I can't believe he said that. That is so inappropriate, especially for a sermon. Ah, this pastor, I can't believe him talking about scubula. Right? That's because you're religious and you take yourself too seriously and you don't take God seriously enough. God uses a very strong word here because he's actually getting at a very strong point. What God is saying is this, your good works, your good deeds, when you stand before him on judgment day, all you'll be doing is holding up your big pile of scuba and saying, here's what I've made. You know what God's gonna say? That's disgusting. Why should I let you into my kingdom? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. It's about relationship. It's not about religion, and it's not about what you do. It's about relationship, and it's all about who you know. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Paul says, I had everything, and I count it all as loss for the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you connected with Jesus? For Paul, he would say, it's all loss. It's all worthless. It's all garbage. Come to know Jesus, because Jesus has something greater. Works-based righteousness, it does not work, because 
because it's all about you and there is no righteousness inside of you. There is no perfection inside of you. So you need a righteousness that doesn't come from you. You need a righteousness that comes from the Lord, that comes from Jesus because only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus was holy. Only Jesus was true. Only Jesus lives the perfect life, the life without sin. Only Jesus dies the painful death for our sins in our place. And only Jesus can give us righteousness. This is why Jesus is a joy giver because Jesus gives you joy. Jesus gives you hope. Jesus gives you mercy. Jesus gives you redemption. Jesus gives you a salvation. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. There is nothing that you can do to deserve it. And there is nothing you can do to lose it because it's a gift that he gives to you freely. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I would encourage you right now just to give your life to Jesus. Just pray right now. God, there is no righteousness of my own. Would you grant to me your righteousness? And there is nothing, 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 nothing in this world that would give God more joy than to give you joy through Jesus. See, this is the problem with religion. It's that it's all about you. And do you know how frustrating it is to live your life for yourself? Do you know how miserable it is to live your life thinking that everything is all about you? Do you know the joy that there is from just receiving what God has available for you? This is why Paul is getting at this point of perspective and frustration. Because when you live for you, it's miserable. But when you live for Jesus, it's joyful. And I want to just encourage some of you right now, because I know that right now there are some people who are watching who you were raised in a religious environment and home, and you rejected Jesus, but really you were just rejecting religion. That you were taught that Christianity is a bunch of rules and regulations and things that you need to do, and if you mess up, God will punish you and be angry towards you. And so as you got older and you became more jaded, you rejected Christianity. But might I suggest to you that you need not reject Christianity. Instead, just reject religion because Jesus has a joy that he wants to give for you. Let me just read a list of some things that I put together about the difference between works righteousness and gift righteousness and religion versus relationship. Number one is religion is all about your works. But relationship is all about Jesus' works. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. That means all of the work has been done. That Jesus did the work for you, and so there is no more work for you to do. Religion says, if you obey, then God will love you. Relationship says that we obey because God loves us. This would be like me going to my daughter Esther's son, who is three years old, and saying, if you clean your room, maybe I will love you. Do you see how horrible that is? That's what religion is. If you do this, then God will love you. No, Jesus comes along and he offers relationship. I love you, therefore follow and obey me. Do you see the difference between the two? Religion says there are good people and bad people. And this is why it's about pride, because they think I've earned this and I'm better than them. Yeah, they need Jesus because they're weak people, but I am strong, I am successful, and I am a good person. Do you know how judgmental you sound when you say that? 
That's what religion does. Religion sees good people and bad people. Do you know what Jesus sees? Jesus just sees people. That there are sinners and I am a savior and I love every single one of them and I can change anyone. There is no such thing as good people and bad people. When God looks across the world, all he sees is Jesus and people and everybody needs Jesus. Religion is all about perfection. You got to be perfect and earn your own righteousness. Relationship says, I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. And that in Christ, he gives me his righteousness. This is why the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that through him, we might become the righteousness of God. That at the cross, Martin Luther refers to it as a great exchange, that all of our unrighteousness is given to Jesus and all of Jesus' righteousness is imputed or given towards us. That we become the righteousness of God. Everything that Jesus accomplished has been given to you. There is no more ladder for you to climb because Jesus descended down the ladder to do the work and to give the righteousness to you. This is the difference between religion and relationship. And in the end, religion leads to pride and despair. That you become proud and you become arrogant because you think you're better and you think you deserve more. And then when the bottom falls out, you lose all of your hope. And it ends in despair. And it ends in frustration. But on the other hand, relationship that leads to humility and that leads to joy. That it's not about me. It's not revolves around me. It's not about what I do. I am free. I am free to love others. I am free to, to serve others. I am free from the materialism and the demands and the pressure that are put on me by this world. I've been set free to be able to live a life of freedom and live a life with joy. If you live your life for you, you will be frustrated. See, Jesus has a joy that he wants to give to you. Jesus has a joy that is available to you. Jesus is a joy giver, but religion, religion is a joy killer. And so what I want to do to close today is I want to give you five truths to help you enjoy your life from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Here are five truths to help you to enjoy your life. This is really still all about perspective, that if you live your life by focusing on the problems, you will be frustrated. But if you live your life by focusing on your perspective, then you will find joy. I just want to be honest with you, Redemption, that I have spent many years of my life as a Christian joyless, cheerless, hopeless, and miserable because I believed that joy was all based on me. That if I could earn this, and if I could do this, and if I could achieve this, then I will finally be happy. That if I were to work this hard, or if the church was to be this size, or if I could just have this in my life and get through this season, then on the other side, there will be joy. And you know what was on the other side? Just another season, just more things to do, and another ladder to climb. And I was hopeless, I was cheerless, and I was joyless. But I want you to understand that joy is not just out there. Joy is also right here. 
That joy is not something you achieve. Joy is something that you receive, and it comes from the Lord. This is why Paul says at the very beginning, don't be frustrated, and don't forget, keep rejoicing in the Lord. That means that there is a way for you to enjoy your life. Here's what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. I told you at the very beginning that much of our frustration comes from what we focus on. It comes from our perspective, right? And so if you give it enough time, eventually science and the secular research is actually going to land at the same point that the Bible teaches. And so there was a big study that was done several years ago, and here's what they found. That much of your joy, contentment, and happiness only comes from 10% of your life. These are the 10% of things that you control, like your work, your family, your children, your bills, your school. It depends on this 10% of things that you have the ability to control. But the other 90% of joy comes from your perspective. That it's not about your circumstances, it's about your perspective. It's not about what you do, it's about how you see the world. It's not about what you go through, but it's how you go through it. And if you go through life focusing on the problems, you will always be frustrated. But if you fix your perspective, then it's possible for you to find joy. So here's what I want you to be encouraged with today. That God has a joy that is big enough for you to enjoy your life. God has a joy that is big enough for you to enjoy your life. I used to believe that life is hard, God was good, and then you die. And you know what that resulted in? A joyless life. A joyless Christianity. Because I thought that joy was always in my future, but I didn't realize what the Bible promises, that joy comes in the morning, and that there is a joy that God wants for you to experience today. God has a joy that is big enough for you to enjoy your life. So I want to give you five truths for you to enjoy your life. The first thing is this. If you're taking notes, write it down. You will never be perfect. All you control freaks, go ahead and say that out loud right now. You will never be perfect. Okay, and then your wife recorded that, and so she's going to hold you to it. You will never be perfect, but you can make progress. The Christian life is not about perfection. The Christian life is about growing and making progress in your faith. Paul here says, I'm not perfect. This is the Apostle Paul. He's been following Jesus for 30 years. He's planted like 20 churches. He writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And you know what he says? I'm not perfect. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to press on. I'm going to make it my own. I'm going to make progress in my life. And day by day, he kept growing. Day by day, he was making gains. And day by day, he was receiving grace that comes from the Lord to be able to enjoy his life. If all you do is focus on being perfect, you're going to miss the point and you're going to miss God's perspective that God wants you to grow and make progress along the way.
Number two is this. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. The Bible doesn't promote this toxic positivity that if you just close your eyes and click your heels, then everything's going to go away and there is no problems. That's not what the Bible promotes. The Bible doesn't promote this easy believerism to where if you just, just, if you just pretend it's not real, it's not real. That's not what it says. That some of you really are hurting. Some of you really are struggling. Some of you, you really are going through it and you're frustrated and you're fearful and you're afraid. And I want you to know that's okay. It really is okay. But it's not okay for you to stay that way. That you don't want to get stuck in your emotions. You don't want to get stuck in the life stage that you're in because then you're going to continue to live that forward into the future and that's not healthy and that's not good and that's not what God wants for you. Paul says that I press on. He's admitting that I'm not okay, but I'm not going to stay that way. Some of you, you need to get help. You need to pick up the phone and call someone and let them know where you're at. Let them know what you're going through. Maybe this means going and see a doctor. Maybe this means getting some medication. Maybe this means getting off your couch and going for a run. I don't know what it is, but you need to do something. Don't do nothing. Do something. It's okay for you to not be okay, but it's not okay for you to stay that way. If you want to enjoy your life, you got to do something to be able to step forward into what God has called you to do. The next one is this. Your past might explain you, but it doesn't define you. I'm grateful for Paul because Paul here, he is using himself as a negative example to be able to help us. He's saying, here's my past. Here's all of my pride. Here's all of my mess ups. Here's all of my mistakes. Here's all of the things that I've done wrong. And I'm going to use them to be able to help other people because his past explains them, but his past does not define him. He says that I have been made by Christ Jesus. He has made me his own, that my identity comes from him. My value comes from him. My worth comes from Jesus. My past explains me, but it does not define me. I am defined by Jesus. You need to understand that your past doesn't define you anymore. That if all you do is live in the past, then you're going to be defined by your past. But what God wants to do is he doesn't want to have you to excuse yourself. He doesn't want you to get stuck in that moment. He doesn't want you to live in the past. He wants you to use it to be able to help others. Your identity doesn't come from what you've done. Your identity comes from what Jesus has done for you. Number four, he tells us that maturity is a mindset. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. That if you think only about the 10%, you're always going to be frustrated. But if you see life and you see the world through the viewpoint of joy and God, well, that's what maturity is. Maturity, again, is about your perspective. If you're looking for all the problems, you're going to find it. But if you're looking to find joy, you're going to find that too. Maturity is a mindset. And then lastly, number five, look forward to the future. But don't forget that there's joy for your life today. There is a calling of the Lord that is on your life, that God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. God has a destiny for you, that God has a future for you. But don't get so caught up in always looking forward to the future that you forget to live in the moment because there is joy for you today. In the beginning, he says, rejoice in the Lord. That means you can keep going to him and he's going to continue to give you joy. 
that I used to believe that if I just did this, then I will be happy. That is a works righteousness that leads to frustration. Instead, there is a gift righteousness that leads to joy because Jesus is a joy giver and he has enough joy for you to be able to enjoy your life. I'm going to close by telling you a story. This, this week, I, I came home one day after work, frustrated, nothing new, and my daughter Esther's son did what she always does. She meets me at the door, and she always says, Daddy, 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 up, 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 and I say, ah, baby girl, and I pick her up, and I say, oh, I love you, and then she says, I love you, and so I said, baby, what do you want to do today, and she said, I want to go outside and play. So I said, okay, let's do that. So I took her outside and we sat on the swing. And as we're sitting on the swing, she put her head on my shoulder and she said, daddy, I love you. And I said, baby girl, I love you too. And that's the picture of what God has for you. See, my daughter Esther, she's three. She doesn't know what's happening in the world. She doesn't know what I'm going through at work. She doesn't know what's happening all around us. All she knows is that her daddy loves her and that her daddy wants her to be happy. That's all she knows. She can't fix the economy. She can't apply for unemployment. She can't go and buy groceries. She can't even spell. But you know what she does have? She does have a perspective that her daddy is there for her, that her daddy cares for her, and that her daddy wants more than anything for her to be able to have joy. God is a father, and God loves you with the love and the affection that a father has for his children. And if you go to him, guess what your heavenly father has for you? Joy. That's why Paul can keep saying over and over again, rejoice in the Lord. If you're here today, I want to encourage you, run to Jesus, because Jesus has joy for you. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.